HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep Food Radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Uh, you'll have to excuse me for some unexplainable reason I decided to eat some peanuts before recording this intro. So <clears throat> I'm just still trying to work that out mouth-wise. Um, guys, hi, how are ya? Um, another week of strangeness. Um, I am slightly soothed by the nice weather. Um, Bobby and I were able to have a little distanced Mother's Day. We got to go sit in her yard together, spaced apart, and uh, that was really nice. And, you know, Mother's Day, even when you have a wonderful mom, can still be a weird day. It's, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of holidays can bring up a lot of feelings for folks. So we hope that you guys got through that and that you enjoyed our episode um, with Jenny Indig, uh, it was a very touching and very sweet episode. And today on the show, we have a great guest, a really fun, amazing woman, Jessie Sheehan. Uh, Jessie is the author of The Vintage Baker. Um, she is, uh, an incredible baker. She is on Instagram is Jessie Sheehan Bakes. If you don't follow her already, just the amazing, confections that this woman is creating on a daily basis is uh 
it's just it's really just joyful the things she makes are just fun and playful and delicious i recently called upon her for a recipe because i had some extra sour cream and she gave me a great recipe for a sour cream chocolate cake um and jesse comes on today to talk to us about her battle with breast cancer and how baking and cooking played into it i mean mostly baking because she really is an amazing baker and her story is really interesting and uplifting. And Jessie is just such a shining light of a person. She's one of those people that walks into a room and makes it brighter. So it was wonderful to talk to her. And we hope that you enjoy our conversation with Jessie. And we hope that you guys are all hanging in there and taking care of yourselves and each other. Um, okay. Bye. Hi, Jesse Sheehan, or Sheehan, <laughs> but we've discussed you can say it either way. Yes, you can. Hi. So, so it's really Sheehan. Yes. But Sheehan is maybe helpful for folks just trying to look you up or... 100%. There's so many different ways. Hello. Tomato, tomato. Am I right? 100%. Ladies. Um, Hi, Jesse. Hi, Bobby. <laughs> Hi, Jesse. So Jesse is a cookbook author, recipe developer, and food writer, and the author of The Vintage Baker. Indeed. Which is a wonderful book that you've brought us a copy of, which I cannot wait to tuck into. Yes, yay. Um, I follow you on Instagram, mm. and I'm always looking at your delicious cakes, but particularly you make these snacking cakes? Yes, I am obsessed with snacking cakes. Okay, now... Is a snacking cake exactly what it sounds like? A cake that you could take like a little sliver off of throughout the day? 100%. I mean, everybody has like a slightly different idea about what a snacking cake is. But to me, a snacking cake is different than like a sheet cake mm-hmm. because it's in like an 8 by 8 or a 9 by 9 pan rather than I think of a sheet cake as being a 13 by 9 by 2 pan. Right. But essentially, it's a one layer cake in my world with an insane amount of frosting on top like (laughs) frosting to cake ratio is really excellent Um, but you could be more um, uh, maybe you're not as frosting um, forward as I am we are we are (laughs) oh yeah we're frosting forward we're pro frosting 100% on this podcast yeah Because you could just sprinkle a little confectioner sugar on it, a little whipped cream, but I get out I'm, of here. I'm into frosting. Of course. Where did this love of sweets begin for you? So it's the the voracious sweet tooth has always been there, like since I was little, no question. But I didn't like you know my mother stocked us stocked our our kitchen with like devil dogs and double stuffed Oreos and um, Pepperidge Farm raspberry turnovers. Like these mm. are like my fave things from being little um but no one was a baker in my house neither of my parents Mm -hmm. um I had a grandmother um in Cleveland I grew up in Boston who who was into baking but I wasn't even into like getting in the kitchen with her Mm. I just liked visiting because you got to eat all the stuff yeah so it was this it was this funny path where I was always sourcing out the best yummy things to eat and buy, but never wanting to make them myself until um, my career kind of has had many different kind of facets. And I was um, I was an actress when I graduated from college. Oh my and gosh. then I was a lawyer. Wait a minute. Hang on. <laughs> Excuse us. Cut. Pause. <laughs> um, and what kind of actress? So I... So I went to college in New York City, and I um, and when I graduated, I started doing sort of like off off Broadway, okay, 
theater, um, voiceover work. Then I worked, started doing regional theater, so I would leave New York to do plays. And just as things always seem to work in life, just as things were getting good and like my agents were getting me work, I was done. Because mm. it, it's tough, and I think, I mean, that sounds so silly. Of course it's tough. A lot of things are tough. But what was particularly hard about it is I, it, there's no meritocracy, really. You know, it doesn't matter if you really work really hard. Yeah. And are even talented. Right. Which I think I was. I probably wasn't the best, but I was pretty good. Um, but that doesn't, it sort of doesn't matter in that world. Mm. And I, that's probably true in a lot of different kinds of creative jobs. But I think I was drawn to go to law school because I was sick of getting on airplanes and having people ask me what I did for a living. And I would say actress. And they would mm. say, oh, what restaurant? Like, then they would start guffawing. Right. right. So it was important to you to kind of transition to something that felt more meaningful and that you could yeah. take a little bit more like ownership in. And, yeah. Okay. It's funny that I've now come full circle and I'm back being a kind of freelance creative person. Mm -hmm. But um, but I really craved like I wanted to go to a job every day. Yeah. Or, or I thought I did because I really mm. I went to law school, which I loved because I'm weird and I like school. Yeah. Um, but then I graduated and I I clerked for a year and practiced for two and I was done. So mm. it's I wouldn't say it had an illustrious legal career. Right. <laughs> I had a brief one. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, though. It's like I'm thinking about some of the parallels between baking and law, and it's all kind of coming together. I'm, I'm painting a picture of you. 100%. And I'm yes. getting to understand a little bit, yeah. a little bit about how your brain yeah. might work. So growing up, you grew up in Massachusetts. Yes. What was your family structure all about? You guys, you said you, that cooking wasn't a huge thing. Cooking wasn't a big thing. Well, baking definitely wasn't a big thing. Cooking wasn't a big thing. My Both my parents worked. My mother actually had someone who came once a week and like cooked out of the Silver Palette cookbook for us and oh. put everything in like re seal sealed bags. Mm -hmm. You know those machines where you can like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sealed that all up, put it in the refrigerator and we ate that all week long. Now you would think that I would have been in heaven because that's an excellent, excellent cookbook. Absolutely. I don't know what my problem was. Yeah. I think my brother's problem was that it wasn't my mom cooking and maybe okay. he was already like a little tiny sexist person and he was like, why doesn't mom yeah. cook for me? Me? <laughs> I don't know if I was a tiny sexist person or not, but I, I just, I didn't love the food. Or anti-plastic bags. There you go. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was before my time yeah well it's interesting you know because it's even though it's delicious food and and it's you know made from a great cookbook there is still something about not having it be not seeing the process right, right? of course 100 percent. and knowing that your background now is like in acting which is process and practicing law and yeah. baking like there is something that maybe was attractive about process and seeing it happen and even though your family wasn't Making food and that yeah. didn't seem to be something that was an important part of the upbringing. It's obviously somewhere to you important. Yes. You know what I mean? That's interesting. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so, but funnily enough, we all loved food. Like we searched out good restaurants and, you know, that was important to everyone in my family and still is. Um, but there was, but it, it wasn't that, that story. I, I know a little bit about your life with growing up with Bobby and yeah. your dad. It wasn't, it wasn't, that's not my story. Yeah. It was like, oh my gosh, we're doing this or it's Sunday and we make this on Sundays. And right. It didn't really work like what that. What kind of flavor profile do you think that you learned to like when you were young? That's a good question. I mean, uh... I think I learned to like everything. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. very broad, mm -hmm. you know, we were going to have Chinese food or Indian food or Italian food. Like we were always eating kind of everything. I would say like a, an appreciation for like well-flavored in the sense of like 
I'm kind of really into salt. Mm, same as My whole family were like, you know, like we were always like this. I think I need a little salt. Yeah, yeah salt I think so too. too. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, not that flavor, salt is a flavor, but the idea of enhancing. It brings out. Yeah. The idea of enhancing whatever you've been given with like, I think this needs salt. Right. Um, but it's funny. It's it. I think there was something there in terms of an appreciation because of, of food and sweets and all of that because eventually after being a lawyer and after being an actress and I was a stay-at-home mom for a little while, I kind of felt like I, I, I loved being with my boys. I love my kids. I love that people stay home with their kids, men and women. But for me, it was sort of I needed to be doing something outside of my house. And... Um, it was like a friend of mine who said to me, like, well, you love sweets. Like, go learn something about making them. Right. So I, I went to Baked, which is a mm-hmm. bakery in Red Hook um, that kind of made, and still does, make these kind of, like, old-school Americana sweets, which I kind of knew-ish was my thing. I don't think mm-hmm. I could have articulated it that way, but I knew that the kind of sweets I loved kind of were like my devil dogs and my devil stuffed yeah. Oreos and my mm-hmm. raspberry turnovers from Pepperidge Farm. You know, kind of like... Big, big is always the operative word with me. I'm not like a petite snack person. Big, um, like big and lots of cream, and lots yeah, of cake and um and something flaky and yummy and buttery like that, like that turnover and Oreo cookies that had like maybe a little too much filling. Right. And I went into baked and essentially said like, "Hey, want to teach me everything you know? <laughs> I'm dying to learn." And they, of course, thought I was insane because what like older mom because I was an older mom like walks in and says that right I think they really thought I was crazy it was your neighborhood right yeah, yes right. and but, your neighborhood is in Red Hook yes right well I just want to go back for a second though what do you think it is from if can you pinpoint anything now you said your family you all had kind of like a you were had a salty palate yeah. and you learned like lots of different kinds of food yeah can you pinpoint what you think it is that makes you like extra frosting and bold Ooh. things because it's I think it's interesting because actually Bobby and I are very similar yeah and I think that's kind of like uh an interesting thing to think about what separates the people from like a you know a little swipe yeah. of mayo condiment people from not condiment people I love mayonnaise right do same. you guys love mayonnaise oh, oh my, oh my god. god mayonnaise of course. is my life yes of okay. course so I want to know if there was anything yeah. like from that you can pinpoint from growing up or where did you learn to like this I yeah. learned it from Bobby and yeah. my dad so where did you learn this yeah that's from? a really good question I'm I'm not sure if I could pinpoint it on a parent per se mm-hmm. or a grandparent although again I think my 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 family likes the same kinds of things I like they're yeah. probably a little more flexible than I am where I'm, I'm really not gonna probably order the petite gorgeous French tart that yeah kind of doesn't have anything going on that's like creamy and yummy and over the top I'm probably going to pass yeah. on that um and get the pudding yeah <laughs> um but I will say that just my personality I I'm like big and and into a lot and like when yeah. I do it I do it fully and so it's like it's almost like the desserts kind of speak to the kind of way I live my life right. in a way. I mean, I don't want to be like, oh, I live life to its fullest. No, but I think it is. What, what I was circling around was that I think that that is indicative of a lust for life. Yes. Zest. Yeah. Right? Yes. So yes. I find that people who like extra or more or like get, you know what I mean? And it can represent itself 100%. through food really tend to be people who have a lust for life. Right. And I'm just going to say like that, like when I like to drink wine, I probably like to drink too much Same. wine. Same. You know, so everything 
look, I also have a lot of discipline and I'm a disciplined person. Absolutely. But I also, when I'm allowing myself to like go at it, yeah. I, I, I live will. it to the fullest. I really do. As the, kiddo, <laughs> as the kiddos would say, you're extra. Yeah. But same, we're extra, we're extra too. What I, were you going to say, Bobby? I was about to say, you always describe it to me that I eat the guts and the lobster. Oh yeah, you suck those guts so, right yes. out. <laughs> yes, 100%. For, for real, you know, and like eating with your hands and like, so I want to ask you then with this knowledge that you have a lust for life. So it leads you to leave your career as an entertainment lawyer, which I think is also interesting because this is like a solid career. I'm sure you made good money and you had stability, but yet you were like inspired to chase a really a dream, which is, you know, to go back and learn as you were just mentioning before about going to baked and working with young kiddos and like starting from the beginning. So I think, again, we're seeing your lust for life yes. and your passion and just kind of like impulsivity, perhaps, yes. and chasing, you know, the goodness and the richness and the extra. Yes, 100%. The extra. So, okay, so you're then at Baked. You decide, what, what, why did you decide to leave your career exactly? What was that moment where you're like, I'm going to, I'm done with this. I need to be a baker. Well, funnily enough, and I joke that I'm still on maternity leave, it, it <laughs> coincided with the birth of my 16-year-old. So it was a long time ago. Okay. But essentially, I went on maternity leave when he was born. And I was like, see you in three months. <laughs> and that was um, 16 years ago. Amazing. Um, but I think um, it, I just, it, I knew right away it wasn't for me. Again, I loved the law school part. I like to, not like a wildly competitive person, but I do like to like succeed and do really well. So I'm like, I like being a student. I like getting grades. Do you yeah. know, I'm that kind of like annoying person. And and so I liked all of that part, and I liked clerking for a judge because that's mostly writing. Yeah. Um, but then when I got to being a lawyer and you had to, like, fight with people, I hate fighting. Right. I want everyone to get along. Every case I got, I wanted to settle. My <laughs> partners were like, you know what? Uh, we are not settling. Um, <laughs> we are fighting. That's amazing. Um, so it was, it was just knowing I was in the wrong place. And then funnily enough, like, duh – also realizing, like, this is not the environment for me. I don't want to be in an office every day. Right. I hated the lack of control you have mm-hmm. because, you know, you could be sitting at your desk at 7.30, closing up your computer, ready to go home, and you get a call from a partner saying, hey, you're staying tonight. Order dinner because right. we're going to get working on a brief. So mm-hmm. that was also mm-hmm. – I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm this – I do have a zest and lust for life, but I'm also a control freak, and I yeah. like to have my zest and my lust on my own terms. Absolutely. There's a lot of control freaks in the kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. It's yes. interesting. I was, I mean, I was working on a project this week and noticed that uh, I often work on my own, and so I'm unaware sometimes of my own controlling tendencies at this point. But then when you see it with other, you know, other folks, and not that it was anything bad, but it is interesting about uh, chefs and control. I feel that way now because I yeah. obviously work alone. I'm yeah. never around other people. And, yeah. Um, I don't know. I miss it, but I also know that I I'm so specific in the way I like things done. It's yeah. it's hard to imagine like you know. It, it's hard to imagine being in a work environment where you're interfacing with people. All it, the time. it really is once you go back from it. So while you're at Baked, um, you are diagnosed with breast cancer. Yes. And you were 41. Yes. Okay. Mm. What was that? What was that like for you? So that was um. So I had two little kids, which I think was um is an is an important kind of piece of the puzzle because it wasn't like the kind of thing that. 
I imagine feels differently if it's just you. Yeah. Uh, maybe you and your hus- husband or partner or girlfriend or boyfriend, but basically just you. So everything about it, I would say, was was experienced in the le- with the lens of them. Yeah. Um, and because they were so tiny, um, for, for better or for worse, the, the kind of breast cancer I was diagnosed with was bad enough that I ended up getting a double mastectomy and having chemo and, and radiation. But quote-unquote good I mean it sounds funny but I'm just gonna say it but good enough that um that it was slow growing I mean this, mm-hmm. these are kind of like yes. nitty-gritty details we can delete these but no, um, but no, like really. it was slow growing cancer it, yeah. there were some good pieces of it and the and the message I got from all the doctors etc that were advising me was you know this is good cancer slow growing cancer this that yeah, and the other right. but you have tiny kids yeah. I bring it full circle to yeah. the kids you have tiny kids so if I were you I would um, uh, um, attack this with the most aggressive treatment. So I met doctors who said, you don't need chemo. Mm-hmm. You really don't. Or you don't, but blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, long story short, I went a very aggressive, I took very aggressive measures because of the kids. Not to say that I wouldn't have anyway, because I was 41 and that's, you know, relative. Yeah. now that seems very young, but that's relatively young. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and so the kids did color sort of my of experience with that. It also made it so that, you know, I didn't like lie around the house. Like, again, it's not really, we're back to the zest and the lust. It's not really my personality. But maybe I would have been a little bit more indulgent about um, relaxing, taking it easy during the treatment, mm-hmm. after of the course. operation, etc. cetera. Um, and I wasn't because when they were that little, it was interesting, the doctor's told you or the therapist in the hospital said the best way to do it, deal with it with your kids is to tell them particularly the chemo because you don't have any hair yeah. um, is to tell your kids that you're you're taking very strong medicine because you got sick and that's just mm-hmm. how I described it yeah. I'm not even sure I ever said the word cancer to them but right. they were only six and four so they right. were tiny it was the facts it was it was the facts and it was just a way for them to understand the, the way I looked but when I had my actual surgery I don't know again not saying that this is how everybody behaves or reacts, but I was up and about pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, I never even kind of said to my kids, mommy's going to the hospital, then mommy's coming back, then mommy's lying in bed. It was, they were little enough, which I'm grateful for, that yeah. we could kind of almost. Right. You could avoid the maybe could. really deep conversation we because could. they couldn't even probably retain it. And try to not make it traumatic. Totally. And I would say in a funny way, and I'm just thinking about this now out loud, but having to deal with them probably made things easier Mm -hmm. because you couldn't kind of collapse into yourself or your own sadness or your own, because you were focused on, you know, putting on a relatively, I mean, I'm not saying I was like walking around like with like a huge smile on my face 100% of the time, but a lot of the time. Well, I think it's interesting, actually, the thing we've talked to various different people in here and then just in life. Right. And people have all these different attitudes towards dealing with trauma and crisis. Right. Whether it be cancer or the death of a loved one. And I feel like 
the need to go on, the need to go on for someone else is generally what I've found people say propels them through this time without, That's right. you know what I mean? Uh, do you agree, mom, in your practice? I do. do you? I think there's two things I'm thinking of. It's what happens to us in life and the way we view it. So mm-hmm. everybody really does have a different lens. It, they can feel like a victim. They can feel angry. I think in your case, your primary lens was your kids. You were mm-hmm. viewing it through their well-being mm-hmm. and their future and the hope. Mm-hmm. That that you needed to have 100 to be with them. I'm wondering, and this could be totally not connected, mm-hmm. but so you have young kids, you're diagnosed with breast cancer, mm-hmm. you're finding a need to get you know through this. Mm-hmm. Is the baking of um, these, you know, and particularly baking of these vintage, really mm-hmm. nostalgic sweets? Do you feel like there's any correlation there of wanting to kind of go back to almost like a nostalgic childhood thing make things for your kids Mm -hmm. while you're going through something that's so intense is there any correlation for you there it's funny I think that there was always like I said earlier even though I would never have put the word vintage on it and Mm. I might not even said have said nostalgic I think there was always a sense like when I first worked in walked into baked before I ever applied for a job there the idea of like oh my gosh yes these huge layer cakes and these big cookies and these (laughs) like this coffee cake that like is enormous like that is those are my desserts those are my that's me um so I think it was it it I I think that part of me was always there what I what I do think about those desserts in a different way but kind of the same is because I was working there when I was diagnosed I certainly feel like the experience of um, of being there and of working during my treatment was, I don't know, huge for my for my for like I, don't, I won't say recovery exactly, but for the speed with which or the the um, it just it just made getting through everything a little easier. Well, in reading your article, you know, when I got cancer baking made me feel powerful yeah when you said flour butter and sugar that you were among flour butter and sugar I could sense it I my thought of what butter yeah you know flour and sugar feel like smell like a hundred percent such a warm feeling right about that a hundred percent and it was this it was this funny combo of being in that bakery of being able to make these yummy sweet delicious things that were great in and of themselves also distracting from like everything else that was going on and then this third kind of funny component that was unexpected which is that um everybody I was working with was at least a decade younger than me including the people who own the bakery I mean they weren't a decade younger than me they were younger than me um and really kind of digging being with these people who were so different than everyone else in my life yeah right yeah. Well, I mean, also producing, right? So yeah. you're you're a cog in a small machine, but you know, yeah. you're yeah. you're working actively to produce something. You're working for your kids. I feel like this is all also kind of feeling connected for me in terms of you being able to kind of get through this, you know, diagnosis and treatment with yep. um, you know, strength and poise and I'm sure at times it was very hard, but the way you're describing it, it seemed like, you know, you almost like you were focused, right? Yeah. You're focused on your kids. Mm-hmm. You're focused on your work. And reading your article, um, the same article Bobby just talked about, you were talking about filling whoopie pies. Yeah. Sometimes, right? Sometimes yeah. the decorators would yeah. fill them, but yeah. sometimes you would and you would make the cake part. Yeah. 
Um, and just process. and thinking about that, I started researching about baking and mindfulness. And yeah, really, it's absolutely. like, and we talk a lot about this. And I'm just interested. You know, we always talk about like, you know, you take your brain offline. You, mm-hmm. it's like meditative. Um, but what it really is is actually it kind of is the practice of mindfulness. And Bobby, can you talk about mindfulness a little bit because you know way more about it than absolutely, I do? Absolutely. I think in any type of emergency that we have, the best thing we can do is ground ourselves. And grounding often means simple, repetitive things, but it also means trying to be in the moment so that you're not in your head, and where your head is panicking and worrying and thinking ahead and thinking back. And it's really learning to be in the moment and notice the difference between when you are in the past and when you are in the future and just bringing yourself to the moment. And those simple, repetitive things. I mean, this wonderful Thich Nhat Hanh talks about carrying water. You know, just carrying it up a mountain, one bucket at a time. Mm. You know, people talk about gardening. We had a wonderful guest a couple months oh, ago, yeah. Donna, who talked about, you know, digging in the earth. And that is a mindful moment. There's nothing else but the earth and you or the flour, butter, and sugar and you or the things you have to cut out at certain shapes over and over. And it's just keeping your mind focused. Um, so yeah. mindfulness is so important and I use it all the time with all the people that have trauma that I see, Yeah, you know, trying to, I find out from them what are their simple tasks because it may, I can't tell them to bake because they may not like that. <laughs> you know, for somebody it's vacuuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, for somebody it's sorting through things mm-hmm. in there. Somebody was telling me the other day how they was keep sorting through drawers and looking at all the little things, but you're in that moment. You're just in that moment. Mm-hmm. Right. So really interesting. Yeah. Um, had you had any previous experiences with trauma or loss uh, that like facilitated you in this process? Um, that's a good question. Um, I'm gonna say no. I mean, I've lost my grandparents, who I was close yeah. to, and I my mother's best friend had died of um, of uh, of cancer when I was in or right out of college, and I was very close to her. Um, she had that awful multiple myeloma, you know. My dad died of that. That's what I thought. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's an awful one. Yeah. Um, although I guess the treatment is getting, well, anyway, that's a different, that's a different podcast. The treatment <laughs> is getting, no, it's, you're right. The treatment's getting a lot better for yeah. stem cell research yeah. and stuff. But it used to be a lot more of an instant thing. Yeah that, yeah. that was a little bit more like for her. But I would say in general, no. Uh, I'm at my well. Here's something. When I was when I was a senior in high school or just graduated, my brother had a very very a bad accident and was in a coma for mm. for um, a couple of weeks, and uh, that was definitely um, uh, an experience. I think that taught me um, strength under pressure, strength during sadness. Um, uh, it got me very comfortable, I have to say, with hospitals mm-hmm. right. and um, that whole world. I'm like the queen of the hospital. Like, I, I can do a hospital like nobody's business. Right. Well, that's actually a really interesting point, and it's very true and something people don't think about a lot because when you first have to kind of go into a hospital and be with someone for a long time, it is a very jarring experience, and it's very weird. Yeah. And it is something we don't think about. We don't, yeah. like... We don't think about it until we have to do it. Yeah. And it can be so shocking and upsetting. Like, yeah. oh, what do I touch? Where am I? The yeah. smells. I don't want to, like, open my nose. I don't want to open my eyes. Like, why am I in here? And then once you do it, it, you know, not that it gets better, but it does become, like, something uh-huh. you're more... For uh-huh. some people, it's a trauma. The hospital itself, yeah, it's so traumatic they can't pass by a hospital. They, you know, yeah. I feel bo- of both mindsets. Yeah. I'm yeah. very comfortable in a hospital, so it doesn't scare me, but I do hate it. Yeah, you know. But that's an interesting thing. Yeah. So you got comfortable with that. Yeah, I feel like it's an. I'm really into giving back now. Like when I 
anybody who has breast cancer, friend of a friend, like mm. call me, I'll talk to you. I mean, yeah. obviously it's so, medicine in a great way changes so much so quickly that even now my experience is going to be different than somebody else's because right. everything is different. Like when I was diagnosed, I would talk to women who had had breast cancer, including uh, Dana Cowan. Yeah. Um, we were connected by a mutual friend back then. But anyway, um, and they would tell me about their experience and tell me how awful chemo was and how sick they were and this and that. And you know what? By the time I was having chemo, it was a little bit better. I yeah. mean, I'm not saying chemo fucking sucks. Right. Excuse yeah. my French. Oh, no. Um, but... But I wasn't horribly sick. They were giving people steroids and different exactly. other drugs right. to help you um, deal with that. But what I was going to say is I like to give back. And um, I do so when I hear somebody needs to be in the hospital. And if I'm, I'm, I'm not like searching them out, like Googling, who needs to go in the hospital? <laughs> Let me call them. But the point is I can give them advice. Like, right. look, if you can afford it, you need a private room for this kind of right. surgery you're having because it's going to suck. Yeah. To, you know, and if you can't, don't worry. But what about a nurse? Or make sure someone sleeps in the room with you. It sucks sure. to wake up right. in the middle of the right. night of and have to pee. Right. And you are yeah. not can't make it to the bathroom. But, you know, stuff like that that I feel like is good advice that you only know. It's great. If you've been there. Can I go back and ask you one question? Yeah. When your brother had that accident, yeah. so you were in high school. Yeah. How do you remember your family coping? And, and what about food? Right. came to that? Good, good question. Food-wise, um, we all loved, like, dim sum. We had grown oh. up going to dim sum. So my mother would bring my my brother baking um, uh, dumplings oh, um, all the time from our yeah. local Chinese restaurant. I remember she tells a story of, like, one time going. And I, my brother was obviously awake from his coma because otherwise... He wouldn't right. be able to eat. But she maybe she didn't have enough money or something, and she cried in the store, the restaurant tour, gave her the food, you know. Oh, gave it to her for free? Yes. Oh, that's So nice. I remember that's I remember the dumplings, and I remember it, it was a hospital in Boston where I grew up, and right nearby, I can't remember the name, but it was an iconic, like, Philly cheesesteak kind of place. Maybe not Philly, yeah. but a cheesesteak kind of place. And I remember going with my brother there. Maybe when he was in a wheelchair. But anyway, bringing him there to eat the the steak. Like, yeah. the things that we loved. Again, it's not homemade stuff. Nobody was, like, bringing in cookies for but my brother. But people remember that. Even if it's the stale sandwich in the, you know, cafeteria. But you remember sitting with whoever you're sitting with. And you're feeling so intense at the time. Yeah. And the food has a special importance. A hundred percent. Unusual importance. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So not I rem- necessarily good, but yeah. unusual. Yeah. Those were two good food yeah. memories totally. of that of that time with my brother. Totally. Well, it's interesting because uh, I think, and you kind of mentioned this in that article that um, we were referencing earlier, the moms, when you're dropping your son off at preschool, the mom's kind of looking at you in a way that was like a little bit triggering and sometimes really upsetting, um, kind of like pity almost. And the tilted heads. Uh, the tilted <laughs> heads. Um, and it's kind of like, and then I'm trying to put myself there. I'm putting myself in your position and their position. Um, and the kind of, it could never happen to, oh, it's always somebody else mentality, right? Like, oh, they got can- cancer, how upsetting. Or, you know, but in your case, your brother had been in a situation where it's one of those, oh, that happens to somebody else, right? A terrible car accident when you go into a coma. So did that in some way prepare you, ha- knowing that life actually happens? Interesting. That really, that trauma happens, and that survival. life is like, and survival yeah. happens. How did, did that facilitate you and your diagnosis at all? That's so interesting. So it's part I, of your trauma history. I didn't mean to yeah. that. that. No, so that's okay. It, it helps yeah. to, to understand that in a way of resilience. Yeah. That's a really interesting point because I think there were two parts of that. I think on the one hand, it was my brother, it wasn't me. Mm. And I really think the thing about getting 
cancer or something like that happening to you, mm-hmm. your body, is that you, you kind of, you can't believe it happened to you because you thought that was always going to be someone else. With my brother, it happened to our family, but I have to say, knock on wood, it didn't make me a very, a, an anxious mom. My, the, I'll just tell you quickly what the accident was. He was on a rope swing. Oh. In a canoe with my parents. My parents saw it happen. But anyway, oh he was on the rope swing. He let off. A, he let go a little too soon, and the water was shallow, and there mm. were rocks. Um, and uh, he's great today, FYI. Oh, my um, goodness. Hi, Jonah. Not that he's going to listen. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, uh, but it. So I, it was like I was used to trauma happening to my family right. because it had happened to my brother. I don't think. But I. Oh, this is what I started to say. I know now, like as a mom, I'm not a super anxious mom. I'm not the mom who says, you can't go on the rope swing. I'm just not. I'm not the mom who says, like, oh, my God, you don't have your seatbelt on. Like, I I want them to wear a seatbelt, but I'm not, like, losing my shit. You you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. the trauma got worked through. It's traumas that don't really fully get worked through that end up being kind of a PTSD thing. So you don't have that. Yeah, I really don't. It probably helps that I wasn't there. Totally. You know, yeah. so I didn't actually see it. But I would say when the when I was diagnosed with cancer, um, yeah, there was definitely that, like, really? Like, that happened to me? Yeah. And that, um, and what, what you were describing before about, like, my experience at, in my kid's school was, um, I think I perhaps care a little too much what other people think of me mm-hmm. and how people behave around me. And so I hated being the one that everybody was kind of giving like the side, like sideways eye to mm-hmm. or being extra, um, oh, Jesse. You know, I hated the like the kind of pity-ishness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that's always been me. Like I remember that with like girls in high school. They were my friends and... They were graduating, and I wasn't. And they were like, poor Jen. And I, yeah. for some reason, I don't exactly know why. Um, maybe Bobby can tell me. Yes, yeah. um, just, yes exactly, Bobby. Please. But why is I she had like this? But I this thing about like, not wanting to be kind of um, pointed out or, or in that way. And so I just hated watching these moms um, behave that way around me. I had a wig. And mm. I, of course, at first thought, oh, my wig's amazing. Like, no one can tell. I look 100% fab. And, like, obviously, people could tell. Maybe not everyone, but most people could tell. So, like, that was hard and weird for me, too. I mean, um, I was I was so kind of funny about not wanting to be kind of victimized by people or pitied. I never took my wig off except in front of my husband and my two children. Wow. I didn't even let my mother see me without a wig. Yeah. I did not want anyone seeing me that way um and just to connect it to the to my experience at the bakery what I found at work was that I think because the women were so much younger like breast can I it it wasn't going to happen to them right so they didn't they just were so cool with me right and relaxed and curious and just like really like it it didn't bring up fear in them no yeah right and so they were amazing to hang out with because they just wanted to like what what happened today Ooh, yuck really okay How, how was your husband during that time um, personal question. Yeah, no, that's all right. This is personal podcast. <laughs> um, he was, I mean, he was great. He was not, um, he was not like going to come with me to every one of my chemo sessions. He was not the husband who was like trying to 
talk, call my doctors and like find out what I was definitely the lead on cancer. Mm-hmm. He was kind of took the back seat. Whereas I think some partners um, might be a little bit more like, oh my God, this is happening. How can I control this? I'm going to get involved. I'm going to find it. I'm going to talk to her doctors. I'm going to be there every time she has chemo. Sure. That is not Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, he came the first time and he came the last time. And then I, I had um, 16, um, no, 16 weeks. So eight different treatments and in the, the middle six I filled with friends okay so every time and, but I wouldn't even let my mom come mm. because again it was so painful for her obviously daughter yeah. um that I couldn't handle it hmm. so you didn't want to surround yourself with anybody that looked afraid that was afraid that uh, expressed pity that 100 percent you know was depressed about it 100 percent. I mean now that I say that out loud in the conversation yeah. with my husband it makes sense to me in a way that his his attitude it didn't bother me it was you know he kind right. of acted like I was you know okay, right you okay interesting because this is similar I feel like to Dana's um how Dana spoke about her experience yes. with cancer did you hear that well? I did yeah 100% and uh you know, I think there's just different types of people. Yeah, and absolutely. kind of how you were talking about earlier about how the experience with your brother being in an accident didn't make you a helicopter parent. No. Um, in the same way, you know, it's like seeing that things can happen, right? And you can kind of go one of two ways. And of course, there's a middle there. But it's like, okay, something bad happened to my brother. He got in an accident, so I'll be a helicopter parent. Or it's like, okay, something bad happened. I know bad things can happen, and I would like to live life, and yes. I'd like the people around me to live life. Yes. And maybe similarly with cancer, you know, I have cancer. I need everybody to be concerned about me. I need to – I'm so scared. I'm so nervous. That's not mockery if people feel like right. that. Absolutely. That's very legitimate. Um, or, you know, hey, I want to – I don't want to touch this part of the scared factor. Um, you know, and I think that like past experiences and just personality types inform That's how we exactly react right. to that. Yeah. It, there's a, a saying, which is things are not as they are. They are as we are. Right. So mm-hmm. everything is through a lens of perception. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. And it's, it's one of those times when, you know, people listening to this podcast, it could be like, oh, wow, you know, I, I have cancer mm-hmm. maybe I could be like that but I in some way you, you can and can't you know you can mm-hmm. choose to be to, to in, intake this information and be like oh well this is a way to be but really I think those kind of gut reactions come from a long history of you know how we've dealt with trauma how our parents dealt how with stuff learned. how we you know and just our culture some of it's cultural right of course to that were you scared? Were there times when you were actually really scared? Yes. And I just, before I answer that, I also want to just put it out there that, yeah, my experience is my experience. Yeah. I am not in any way advocating, recommending, oh. encouraging people to go work in bakeries while they're undergoing <laughs> chemotherapy. Um, or nor am I saying if people are pitying you, you should reject them and look of for course. a 25-year-old best friend. Um, you know, <laughs> but, but I do, um, and the third point I want to make is just physically, like, I, you know, I've obviously have friends who've had friends who've had, I haven't had a, I would say, I don't think I've had a super, super close, I hope I'm to say this and my friend will call me after this uh, podcast uh, and say, why didn't you mention me? But I, there, obviously there have been people with breast cancer in my life since I was diagnosed, but some of them have exactly kind of a similar scenario to me and a similar treatment and it's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And they right. are in so much pain and they can't work. And they, so again, I, I mean, luck? I don't know. I guess I'm lucky in the sense that I think I'm, I, pain is funny, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure Bobby can speak to this. It's like how much of, I, I, I always say I have a really high threshold for it. Mm-hmm. Is that really because 
I feel things like pain is less in my body physically or is it my personality is it just the way I handle life so for me mm-hmm. yes it sucked and was there one or two I mean I'm honestly maybe only one or two days throughout chemo where I literally could not get out of bed like yeah. one or two yeah that's pretty good yeah people have weeks of that right so I just want to say everybody's yes, different totally. I'm only speaking from my own experience and not in any way trying to say yes. and you too can do breast cancer my way oh yeah <laughs> of course no it's good that you said that absolutely, yeah, absolutely. and very we totally respect that yeah. and that makes a lot of sense yeah and I would like to address that pain thing um I have studied with and really value um, John Kabat-Zinn, mm-hmm. who wrote Full Catastrophe Living, which is an amazing book. It's huge, but I always mm. tell people just read little parts of it. <laughs> but there's a whole section on pain, emotional pain, physical pain, and I talk about this a lot because if you consider the aspect of physical pain, chronic pain, something you have to live with, if you have to live with something, whether it be for a week, a day, or forever, how are you Going to cho- if you have a choice, if there's some choice on how you view it, the whole concept is that with mindfulness, instead of it being right in front of your face so that everything you view is through the pain, with mindfulness, you try to take it and put it off to the side. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's just with staying focused on something simple like your breath or the flour, butter, and sugar, mm-hmm. that way you can take the pain and it moves over to the side and you're not viewing everything through the pain. And that's how people can somehow learn to live with chronic pain or short-term pain. And I think you had so many things between your kids yeah, and the thing that you were loving, enjoying yeah. the baking. Yeah. You know, it helped you maybe with the same amount of pain. And maybe yeah. it's not your physical body but maybe it's a mentality or a way you viewed it it could be and also yeah. the the husband who one could one could call like deadbeat husband like hello don't you <laughs> want to go to chemo every day and call her yeah. doctors like three times a week yeah. but also if that's what you're getting yeah like it you're, you're kind of okay yeah this isn't I mean I I'm, I'm doing okay right this isn't that and you know he's not like a nightmare obviously I'm yeah. still married to him <laughs> I didn't dump him um but uh yeah no I think you're right I mean that's right in life like it's all about how we think about things how we view things totally. how we package things in our head but I love that image I wish you guys who are listening could see what Bobby did but it's like she's putting her hand in front of her oh I shouldn't do that with the mic <laughs> she's putting her hand in front of her face to be the pain and then moving it over kind of to her ear right yeah a hundred percent true yeah it's like how you how you view things that was a very good and there is, <clears throat> excuse me there is support for that and I've, to anyone, I really would suggest that book if anyone is suffering from either emotional, physical, chronic yeah. pain. Can you remind us what it's called? Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. Awesome. And don't get scared by the size of the book. Also, I was <laughs> just going to put a plug in for Audible books. I don't know if it's oh, on, yeah. but my husband right. listens to everything mm-hmm. in the car. We live in a neighborhood where we dr- end up driving a lot because we don't have a subway stop. But anyway, right. Audible is great, for, mm-hmm. for especially for getting through something long. Yeah. Yes. But to answer your question yeah. about being scared, um, at the, you know... I don't want to say no. <laughs> That's crazy. You can say but, no. But I don't remember. I don't. You know what? I joke that cancer is a job, a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And like anybody that's diagnosed and I hear about it and I'm talking to them, I say like, get ready. Because like the beginning, you go to a million doctors, you run around town with your like little like manila folder of your test. Actually, now probably everything's online. But back mm-hmm. then, mm-hmm. I ran around with pictures of pictures of my, you know, the x-rays and yeah. the, this and the MRIs. And it was a full-time job. I remember like literally having my four-year-old in my car with me. <laughs> like and back then, I, I really 
all the listeners are going to be like, she was the oldest lady that they've ever had on their show. But literally, we didn't even have phone. I mean, I had a phone. Of course, I had a phone. But we didn't have, like, iPads. Like, Jack had, like, this little tiny, almost DVD player that I yeah. would bring. to. Anyway, I digress. But um, but I joke that it's a full-time job. For me, I think the beauty of it being a full-time job is that's where I put all of my energy and thinking, yeah. getting it done. Like, oh, good, today was a good day. I I went to three doctors. Right. As opposed to, oh, my God, today was, I can't believe I had to go. To, exactly. You know, it's just how I, exactly. right. again, just me. Nobody right. else has to do it this way or mm-hmm. is expected mm-hmm. to. But that's how I get through life-ish. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is these are the tasks. I'm really into lists. I don't know totally. about you guys. But you, you make I love your a list, list. Right? Mm-hmm. Lists for life, peeps. Yeah. Um, but you make your list and you get through it. and Again, focus. Yeah. yeah. I think that probably was was helpful in not going into this a really fearful place. So your yeah. mind didn't wander too far. Right. Of yourself. Same Fear with, is negative anticipation of the future. Same with the treatments. Like there were eight of them. They were over 16 weeks. Each, I mean, I just was like plotting through yeah. to get through those. Um, and uh, of course I had moments and it's possible I blocked them out. Like I'm really trying to like remember a time that I was crying a lot or very worried. But I think yeah. I, I didn't really allow my, and knock on wood, I still don't. Like, allow my, I mean, this is like really like, I hope I'm not jinxing myself, but I don't go to a place of like, oh my God, my cancer's, yeah. I don't even want to say it out loud, I, but you guys I know what I'm about what to say. say. Yeah. Yes. I don't even go there. It's just not how That's I roll. Fear. Yeah. You don't go to a place of fear no. that often. So, did you have certain foods that you like to eat when you weren't feeling well? That's a good question. Um, I tried to be, sadly, for me, because I love sugar so much, I tried to not eat sugar for the 16 weeks I was undergoing chemo. I tried to eat less red meat. I'm mm-hmm. It's just FYI, red meat and sugar are like my two favorite food groups. <laughs> um, Same. I, I tried to eat less meat. Um, I remember eating a lot of mushrooms, like sauteing oh, wow. tons of mushrooms because they're supposed to be, mm-hmm. is it the iron? I'm not sure. There's something that's good in those. Wonderful healing properties. Yeah. I don't know what they are. but <laughs> That help with, and, uh, that help with, the, with the chemo. Um, my husband um, back then was a, was a school teacher, and the school was incredible in every I can't even remember. Could it have been every day? We got a lot. Like they had that one of those food systemy things oh, cool. where people made food for us. Mm-hmm. I want to oh, say for four gosh. months, but that sounds a little outrageous. But they gave us a lot of food. Wow, that's so nice. Yeah, and that's that was amazing. everybody. Would, you know, it's Brooklyn, so everything was like yeah. healthy and good for you. I was like, really, this is so healthy. But I ate it, um, and it was so nice, obviously. Awesome. But the things that stand out were the mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't even think of other, it definitely wasn't a focus. I didn't, I wasn't horribly nauseous the way you can be wow. on chemo. So yeah. I didn't feel like I can't eat anything or I can't eat all my favorite things. That was yeah. not my um, experience. But I do remember when I finished um, enjoying um, a whoopie pie at baked, mm. or if not several. Yum, <laughs> whoopie pie. So uh, kind of wrapping it up here, we usually ask people the same question, and I think it's interesting to hear the different kinds of answers to this question, which is if you could give your pe- yourself a piece of advice when you were first embarking on this kind of journey with, you know, cancer, mm-hmm. what would it be? Um I mean, maybe part of me knew this then, but I probably couldn't have articulated that, like, kind of the cliche, like, you got this. Like, mm-hmm. yes, it's going to suck. Yes, it's not ideal. Um, but you're going to get through this. You're going to come out on the other side. Um, uh, everything that is going to happen is 100% surmountable, and you will surmount it. 
We will survive. Yes. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Psyching yourself up. Yeah. 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 I mean, I... I think I, I mean, maybe on some level I knew that. I would never, I couldn't have articulated that to myself, I don't think, because mm-hmm. I was more, in some ways I was more in the moment of like, okay, I crossed that off the list, what's next? So mm-hmm. that kind of weird combo of in the moment, but also like looking at the my next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when I look back on it, it, it seems like it wasn't that, it didn't, things didn't take that long. Yeah. Um, it was over pretty fast. I mean, four months of chemo sounds like a lot, I don't know. It it is, yeah. but it wasn't. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think I would tell myself that. Right. Well, Jesse, it was amazing to mm-hmm. chat with you. You have such a wonderful energy and spirit. Oh, and, yes. you know, one of those folks, well, actually everybody that comes in here has this different kind of aura and it's always positive, yeah. but it's always so different. And yeah. yours is this very sparkly, oh, almost, a, I want to say almost a Tinkerbell-like <laughs> quality. Would Ooh, you agree I with that, Bobby? That. I want to give you a hug with a fuzzy <laughs> I know, you are wearing an so amazing oh, fuzzy. Yes. Fuzzy and adorable. I just bought it and I'm really excited. It's really it. lovely. <laughs> Um, can you tell us uh, and our listeners where we could follow you, find yes. you, anything that you'd like to put out there or plug? A hundred percent. So I'm on Instagram at Jesse Sheehan Bakes, and I am um, on Facebook at Jesse Sheehan Bakes, and then I have a website, Jesse Sheehan Bakes. And I wanted to mention that the article that um, we've been referring to is an article I wrote about my experience with breast cancer and working in a bakery and I wrote it for Food 52 so you can google me and Food 52 and that will come up amazing cool oh and can can you just tell us the name of your book oh yes and please check out my book The Vintage Baker and I also wrote a book called Icebox Cakes yum I love icebox I love that like traditional icebox cake the with vanilla the ch- and chocolate yes 100% it's one of my favorite things uh, ever 100% it's great actually before we get out of here I had just had a side thought because yeah. I love vintage clothing I yeah. love vintage interiors yep um, and design and furniture and stuff like that. And I was like, why do I love this so much? Which I, you know, have pondered before. Yeah. But I was going to try to make a connection with you over yeah. this and ask you how you feel about it. I love vintage things because yeah. it reminds me of a time that I actually didn't even experience or know, but looking back in history, when things were well made, mm. you know, with care and love, and they weren't just mass produced. They were unique. They were from the heart. They were from some, you know, without the influence yeah. of the internet or social media yeah. and like, oh, I want to just reproduce this thing or just make a thousand of them. Is yeah. there any kind of tie to that with you about well, vintage baking? Yeah. The only thing I would say tie-ish is that it was a time where like it wasn't about a drip cake or a geodome cake or um, the most beautiful sandwich cookie that you've ever seen that has the most amazing piped pastry. I mean, all of that is amazing and beautiful and I am not in any way saying that I don't appreciate all of that. But the, the, the old desserts that I love were just simpler. Yep. They just, there is not so much um, pomp and circumstance connected to them and that resonates for me partly probably because I can't make a drip cake or (laughs) pipe anything to save my life um but but also just that that it was simpler then and that's what I like now yeah earnest less pressure yeah for sure cool it's really great to talk to you so great thanks so much for coming in bye all right bye. bye this episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, 
It's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency Tart Cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.